Welcome to the JCMS CME podcast, the audio companion to the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. I'm Dr. Kirk Barber, clinical professor of medicine, dermatology, at the University of Calgary and the editor-in-chief of the journal. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Neil Shearer, professor of medicine, dermatology, and pharmacology, clinical pharmacology and toxicology, at the University of Toronto, the current president of the Canadian Dermatology Association, one of the authors of the manuscript titled Toxic Epidermal Necrolysis Spectrum, Management at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre, Our Multidisciplinary Approach After Review of the Current Evidence, which we published in our March-April 2018 issue, Volume 22, Number 2. Dr. Shear and his co-authors, Drs. Mariniak, Jacques, and Jeske, outline their clinical approach to the management of these critically ill patients and emphasize the importance of the dermatologist in their care. This manuscript is much more than a guideline. It is strategy based on evidence from the medical literature and born from their clinical experience caring for these patients. This strategy is comprehensive, practical, and undoubtedly reflects many hours of contemplation and, of course, stress as they cared for these patients. This manuscript was written by clinicians for clinicians. It's a bedside consultation to be referenced over and over as we care for these patients. Dr. Sheer and his colleagues skillfully guide us from the initial assessment of these patients to the times when dermatologists working in a collaborative group can add significant value to the clinical care and final outcome of these patients. We speak about the obvious practical issues of skin care, but also highlight the often overlooked mucous membrane involvement of the eyes and genitalia. We also delve into the controversies surrounding the use of systemic therapy. I know you will enjoy our conversation as it really brings this manuscript to life. And I'm also sure that you will return to this paper many times as you care for these critically ill patients. My conversation with Dr. Neil Shear. Good day, Neil. Thank you for joining us today. This is a spectacular article. I've had to deal with these patients on call, and you never really know what to do. And this was, I was very appreciative of the fact that you could put these very practical guidelines together. And I know they're not true guidelines, but man, this is going to be something that people are going to refer to over and over and again. So thank you for doing it. Um, I want to talk to you today about not just the guidelines, but how dermatologists make a difference. Because when I read through, um, you know, when we sort of the top line is always, okay, we're going to do burn unit management. And what I learned from reading your article was dermatologists make a difference to to these patients. The burn guys, and I think you made the point, the injury is from the outside in, and we're dealing with the inside out. So we're paying attention to many areas that the burn folks probably don't even pay attention to, and mostly mucous membrane issues. So what have you learned in the 60 or so cases that, uh, that you've managed that you'd like to share with us? I, I think you know, you're touching on something really important, the difference between the perspective of the dermatologist and either a plastic surgeon who happens to be taking a few burns into their unit or the actual burn doctors who, again, are plastic surgeons but are really specialized in burns. And in comes this patient with this things that looks like a burn, and so it gets treated like a burn. But 
over the years, I, I think I've learned a lot about the differences that we have. And, and I was amazed, and, and you can't put it all down in an article, so it's good to think, I've read this article, I've got some sense of where you're going, but you know, what, is, what else is there that's going on? And I think you're asking a really good question about what the dermatologist brings to this. And I, I find I have to keep refreshing the minds of the surgeons because they do change uh, every few months. It's a different surgeon, or one leaves, a new one comes. And it, there's simple things at the beginning. One is making the diagnosis. They're sent to patients that have TENS, and so they assume they have TENS, but they may not. They have bullous lichen planus. They have bullous pemphigoid. They could have scabies for all I know. They will take things and just accept the diagnosis and say, well, yeah, maybe that's what it is. And especially if there was a potential culprit drug that makes it even more likely, despite the fact that the very fundamental issue of making a diagnosis is so important. And when you're going to make the diagnosis, it's not only having the dermatologist look at the patient and make a diagnosis, it's getting pathology for histology and immunofluorescence. And when you do that, you actually start to cone down on a better diagnosis, which gives you a better approach to therapy and a better approach to advising patients about drugs later on and causality, all those issues. Mm -hmm. So what did I learn about that part was I would see the patient, I say, I need to do a biopsy. Say, we're surgeons, we can do a biopsy. I said, okay. A few days later, I said, I went to the lab. They said they never got tissue. Oh, no, it's still in the fridge. So, okay, I figure it's in the fridge and it's in formalin. I go in the fridge and there's a plate with a chunk of skin on it. And I thought, okay, I think we're coming from very different places here where you think that you can just cut a lump of skin, leave it in the fridge, and somehow, miraculously, the icicles in the refrigerator are going to make the diagnosis. It doesn't work like that. And I said, okay, we have a problem here. You have to let us see the patient, make the diagnosis, and do the biopsy. And I tell you, and other people may have run into this, this idea that who are we to make the biopsy? We take a small sample because we actually decide where we want it to take it from. Not because we're chickens, but because we actually want to get the right diagnosis. And then we know how to interpret the pathology. And that's another story. You could send in anything and say, I think it's toxic epidermal necrolysis, and depending on who reads it, comes back consistent with that or consistent with SJS. That doesn't mean anything. We read the real report, we'll talk to the pathologists if there isn't enough information, and you can get a lot better control of the whole situation right at the very beginning. And that alone started to make them think, oh, maybe the dermatologist is adding something to the whole process. It's still an ongoing issue to try and keep that going. Uh, the other thing is when we go to meetings and I'm on committees and go to meetings and listen to all the studies that are going on now in the area, I'm up on that. That's not their job. Their job is to be up on treating burns. And, and I understand that. But there is a, a bit of give and take and sometimes debate. Uh, we sometimes look like we're winning the debate, but then it doesn't work out that way. We found that especially around the question of sepsis, Patients with TN often appear to have sepsis because they also have an overlap with what we now call DRESS. So they have a drug hypersensitivity syndrome, they have toxic epidermal necrolysis, so they've got fever and they've got high white counts and various other things. And then what does it matter that they're on a sepsis protocol? Well, what matters is we can't start the immunosuppressive drugs. And if we can't start those, the clock is ticking and things can really go bad quickly. So that's an ongoing debate, and we're going to look into that more. It definitely needs more insight, more direction. There's great opportunities to do better. So the purpose of the guideline is to spread this information across the country. Um, and 
starting with the dermatologist, do you have any reflection on how we can influence our surgical colleagues with regard to this? Should I just print this out and um, send it around to all the burn centers across the country? Or is it, has this sort of thing been more widely disseminated than I uh, appreciate? Oh, I think you're right. It has not been widely. Uh, we, we were just glad that uh, somebody appreciated it. I, I think what I was trying to do was answer the uh, question, well, that's all very nice, but what do you do? I said, well, what do I do? Well, I guess here's what I do. And I thought, well, you know what? Let's, let's look at what we do. And are we going to do the same thing every single time? No, every patient's different. You get them at different times. Mm -hmm. They have different comorbidities. Uh, different drugs have different effects. Uh, there's so many different issues. And uh, we just wanted to get the message out that uh, here's what we do now. It's not perfect, but since you're asking, what do we do? This is basically yeah. what we've agreed as a group that we see are the key elements uh, to the whole process. Well, it's a great plan. And, and the, the problem isn't if it happens to you in downtown Toronto. It's that it, if this happens to you in any of our peripheral centers without the, the, the backup. And, and, and frankly, the, you know, this condition is rare, but it can occur anywhere. Do you get, do you get people sent to you from outside communities? Is it, do they come in like proper burn folks by helicopters and the whole works? They do get flight in, uh, flown in. Uh, patients do get flown in. They're, um, uh, the burn unit at Sunnybrook, the Ross Tilly Burn Center, is actually the only full-time burn unit in the whole province. Uh, other centers, uh, pediatric centers, other hospitals, maybe a trauma center will see some burns, but uh, this is the only full-time burn unit in the province. And so we do get patients uh, helicoptered in, uh, sometimes sadly too late to do anything, but mm -hmm. uh, at least anything productive. And uh, it does does happen that we do uh, indeed get them. And you know, we presented at the Canadian Burn Association meeting one year, the first year they opened, it was great discussion there. People really care, uh, but it's not necessarily their thing. Uh, we presented at the American Burn Association, their big national meeting, huge interest, especially from a lot of the caregivers. Uh, and that was a good feeling. One of the surprises to me was on a panel when one of the very academic uh, units in the U.S. Uh, leaned over on a, uh, during a panel questioning and said, you see the patients after they leave the burn unit? Why? I said, well, they need to know what drugs they can use safely or not. They need to have some of the myths that they're told dispelled so they're not afraid of every single drug and they're not afraid of every single doctor who might prescribe that drug. And they need lots of advice in terms of physical and mental complications that follow this very severe life-threatening reaction. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. And it made me realize, too, surgeons do do surgery. And... Mm -hmm. Then the world moves on for them. But for these patients, uh, nothing moves on. They have post-traumatic stress disorder and they need help. And I think that's, that's maybe another story. And I do see, uh, of the survivors, um, I, I now see them all or try to see them all, depending on whether they're willing to come back uh, to spend one or two hours actually going over the issues with them and their family. And uh, it's meant a lot to them, which is great. Well, you do uh, reference the UK guidelines um, in, in this article. And one of the authors um, also put together a, a look at the longitudinal look at sort of the chronic phase of the disease, I think is the way he called it. And it, it was fascinating to me um, how many people had not just the psychosocial stuff, which you can kind of intuitively um, gather, but the skin diseases. I mean, 70% of these people um, 
itch, not just dyschromia, but chronic itch, um, and the ophthalmological issues and the vulvovaginal issues, uh, the things that uh, once they're out of that acute world, people might be more inclined to not dismiss so much, but not pay as much attention to. You know, it's true. And when you see these people in follow-up, you do see uh, horrific dispigmentations and uh, all the kinds of issues you mentioned. Uh, some of those are, are temporary and will go away after a year. Um, some last longer. Of course, if you've lost you know, your sweat glands, uh, you're going to be like you were radiated and uh, you're going to have trouble with uh, moisturizing your skin and, and sweating properly. Uh, so there will be permanent skin changes that can really matter to people. Uh, the eyes we and, and the genital lesions, you talk about those mucosal effects, are things we're very aggressive with while they're in hospital. And, uh, and that has really helped a lot. Uh, so as we mentioned there, one of the things is making sure the ophthalmologist not only uh, has them uh, assessed, but also is uh, aware of how to use amnion as a way of keeping the cornea intact, uh, because those things can go bad really quickly. And people can't say, well, I think they're okay today. I'll come back tomorrow. If it even has a hint of anything like hyperkeratosis around the uh, edge of the eyelid, then uh, you have to start therapy right away. For the vaginal destruction, uh, we've had people who have later gone on to full vaginal uh, surgery. But if you can prevent that, and we, we try and deal with that uh, because it's hard to get people to come in and look at it every day. So I have them use a, a tampon with clobetazole ointment on it and say, I want you to put this in every day and then change it. And well, the very fact that they're going in to change it means somebody has to look at it. And yeah. the fact you're putting the steroid in there really helps control the uh, inflammatory responses that we're worried about. So we're going step by step. Uh, it's just, again, the reason for the article was if we're waiting, uh, Gutenberg was waiting uh, always to have the perfect printing press before uh, he would let it go public. And he had so many people supporting him financially. They finally took over the whole thing and said, no, it's good enough. And the good enough principle is big in software today. You can keep tweaking stuff, but sometimes it's just good enough. And I think what we have now is good enough for now. It's not good enough to satisfy us, but it's good enough for now. Ultimately, for some of our worst cases, they really should have been genetically screened for drug, and that's a whole other project. Uh, and we've done a survey in that now, and we see that doctors are woefully lacking in the knowledge that genetic screening can be done for specific drugs in specific populations. And we're very interested to find out about that. So there's more to come on this whole area. Well, the thing that impressed me again about, about your guidelines was at the end of the article, I came away knowing and thinking, look, dermatologists can make a difference. It's really important that this message got out there, especially the practical aspects of what you put together here, the genital stuff, the oral involvement, how to manage oral bleeding, um, that, that sort of, um, topical approach that that to the burn guys is probably just a, a totally ignored and never never a big issue to them so yeah, i think it's a good thing to that. oh you're welcome thanks kirk I, I i think it's important for them to realize it's it's not just a different burn it, it's a different yeah. disease it may have systemic features uh it could be confused with uh, sepsis and uh, even if you're if you're treating with antibiotics already let us start the immunosuppressive drugs uh, and, uh, you know, it, like you say, it's rare. We, I saw we had a meeting for some survivors and a, a person came in uh, who's quite young. And uh, years earlier, as a teenager, she had been in uh, one of the small prairie provinces in a small town of about 400, 500 people. 
And while it took time to get from place to place to place, eventually they did a fabulous job and she has no sequelae physically, uh, which was amazing. It was really heartening to see that it could be done uh, again. And now I think there's just access to information. It makes a big difference. And it really helps when journals like like the CDA journal, the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery that you edit so ably is actually out there getting this information to people because it's practical for prescribers uh, and, and caregivers, not just in dermatology. Uh, but in burn units or people who happen to be associated with a burn unit here. Yes, and I and I remember only too well standing in you know various ICUs and emergency rooms with this kind of condition and and just thinking, oh my dear, what am I going to do now? Yeah, and not having this kind of uh, of backup and having to think through each little step and argue each little step as you went uh, went through it. So. Talking about arguing about things, um, let me take you to a couple specifics, and um, we can discuss them. and And I'd really be interested in your your uh, your thoughts. First off, um, systemic steroids. My thinking, and from the reading, is that early okay, late not so good. What might you think about that? I, I think the therapy changes a bit depending on when you're getting the patient. If you're yeah. getting them at sort of the severe Stevens-Johnson type stage where they've got a horrible mouth and eyes and their skin is blistering in areas but not too, too bad, you do have choices. Cyclosporin often is very good or maybe best in my mind at that stage early on, and that's when it has a big impact. Uh, the argument for steroids at any time is, yes, they do work. Uh, but as we wrote in that follow-up letter, uh, steroids work, and, but when you compare them to etanercept, for example, you're getting faster results with etanercept, and you don't have as high a risk of GI bleeding. And the steroid patients in the study in Taiwan, which is, has been turning out very wonderful and capable studies, uh, you could see you're, you're up to more than 10% of people are getting GI bleed compared to, say, under 3%. So uh, more and more we've been using the etanercept and uh, when do we use steroids? I don't know that there's a right answer to that, but I think if I had to make up an ideal one, it would be somebody who's had an allopurinol reaction because the allopurinol reactions tend to last longer and they already have renal insufficiency. So people sort of back away and say, well, I don't want to use the cyclosporin. They have renal insufficiency. And uh, the etanercept is fine, but you may need to add steroids there, especially if it's an overlap address. Uh, then they're going to need steroids probably for quite a while to keep them under control and to try and prevent relapses and sequelae uh, from the uh, systemic component. So I think there is a place for steroids, uh, a special place in my heart for steroids in those allopurinol complex, difficult patients. Uh, but again, you're running risk of GI bleeding. Yeah, and and I and I again I I'd like the way you presented it in this article, uh, in that this is clinical medicine at its finest observation. Right, we're making making decisions based on clinicians and what clinicians see and feel and think. Um, tell me about IVIG. Well, IVIG was interesting. IVIG started out with a study uh, by Lars French and their group in uh, Switzerland, and they were looking um, at, at something quite specific with this death signal, and. And that was fine. And then they showed that IVIG did seem to work. There was a wide range of dosing. 
Uh, and we were desperate to have any sort of therapy. And actually, those were in the days where you didn't email people. I actually wrote Lars French a letter. I didn't know him, and I thanked him for this great work. Uh, it is up that uh, first we ran into trouble with the dosing because the paper had things like 0.75 milligrams per kilogram body weight up to such and such. And and then we, we saw two things. One is we wanted to give more, but the plastic surgeons were saying, oh, no, no, it says here 0.75. And then what I found out was not all of them were terribly numerate and they would multiply things and come up with numbers that didn't make make sense and so i decided that we were mostly using one gram uh every day for two or three days and so you know one times your body weight it's pretty easy to figure out what the dosing is and so we, we saw fewer errors and we thought we were doing a good job and i think we probably were at the time as it ends up the ivig is is not that good uh it's not standardized uh it is a natural product if you will and how much benefit you're getting from one batch may not be the same as the next batch. Uh, so in many ways, IVIG is sort of slipping out of favor. Why is it not completely disappearing? It's expensive. It's not renewable. Why would it disappear? You know, well, one is people often feel like, oh, well, I'm not giving an immune suppressive. I'm giving something to boost the immune system or protect it. Maybe there's a bit of that, but that isn't really what's happening. And, and the other issue is people are afraid that if they don't give a patient IVIG, they could be sued and they'll say, oh, well, we know now, yes, 20 years later, that IVIG works. No, we knew that then, but we don't know that now. Now we know something different. And uh, they're afraid they're going to be sued if they don't use IVIG. Uh, so there's there's still this sort of lag, this historical lag that you see sometimes with therapies where people start embracing things later. And the other thing is the follow-on effect. When you have a new drug that comes to market, let's say Tandercept here is the new kid uh, for TEN in some people's mind. So what do people do? They go to the one before that and start thinking that was the best one, which I don't understand, but we see that the classic was ren renitidine came to the market, cimetidine sales went up. Yeah. Because they figured, oh, well, that one's good. But cimetidine causes drug interactions and renitidine doesn't. It's just a normal new drug on the market uh, mentality uh, and nobody's saying you have to fail IVIG before you get etanercept. Etanercept is a zillion times cheaper than IVIG. So I, I'm not sure why it's hanging on, but those are my suppositions. So when you're using etanercept, the, you, you make mention in the article, it's given straight away in the first hours and then maybe repeated um, within a few days time. Yeah, I've talked um, to a few centers, especially the one in Taiwan that uses this. And, and we found this to be... It has to be manageable. These patients are complicated. Things are going on in all kinds of areas. Anything that you can standardize makes everyone's life better and actually works better for the patient. So we, we give the Etanercept 50 milligrams at, at the start, and then we'll repeat it twice a week until it looks like they're really, we're seeing uh, no new lesions and the areas are healing uh, in ways that you know make you think that you've really turned the corner. So there might be two doses, maybe three. It's not necessarily more than that. Okay. The other thing that's um, a question that any dermatologist will be asked is about skin covering during this crisis. Um, do you have any thoughts that you can share with regard to how to products you might find better than others, uh, things not to do? I think for the skin protection and covering, there's two debates here. One is whether it's to bride or not to bride. And... And there's arguments for both of those. And then the one is, okay, so we are debriding or not debriding. Here's how we're going to cover it. I would say the most 
politically correct answer to that is I do whatever the plastic surgeons want to do. I don't want to take everything away from them. They're doing all the heavy lifting here. <laughs> we walk in, we give an opinion. They're looking after all these patients and all the complications. Um, you know, they're the ones who are actually bronchoscoping them here, looking at trachea, et cetera. So, and far be it for me to tell them that this dressing is better than that one. So for me, I sort of back off and, you know, whatever the plastic surgeon feels is right, that's fine with me. And I don't know that there's any evidence that I can sort of sniff out or have read that, that truly says it's all been studied and compared and one's better than the other. So, you know, I, I leave that in that domain, their domain. Okay. Well, um, that was great. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, you're welcome. You have been listening to my conversation with Dr. Neil Shear, Professor of Medicine and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto and President of the Canadian Dermatology Association. In our conversation, Dr. Shear has provided us with a bedside consultation that will serve us all well, particularly when we get that pre-consultation anxiety when we're summoned to the emergency room or ICU to care for patients suspecting of having TENS. The manuscript discusses the care but it is also the tables in the manuscript that will be your reference at the bedside. Dr. Shear and his co-authors have emphasized the need for a collaborative, multidisciplinary approach to the management of these patients. But at the same time, they prove that as dermatologists, we have a significant role to play in the acute management of these patients. Our involvement will clearly impact the chronic phase of this disease and ease our patients' re-entry into their lives. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you're notified of my next interview. Our conversations can be found on iTunes, Google Music, TuneIn, and Stitcher, as well as on the CDA and SAGE websites. Simply type JCMS into the directory search window and we'll be together. I am Dr. Kirk Barber, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. Thanks for listening. Until our next visit, be good to each other.